I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Today I was joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Seb is the content editor of the TIFO Football editorial website. I spoke to Seb about four different articles that have been released on the site recently, including talk about Alexis Sanchez, why Chelsea couldn't have afforded him anyway. We talk about Ed Nazard and what his future might hold. We also touch on Jordan Ibe and Eddie Howe at the Bournemouth Project. And finally, we talk about individuals and Twitter accounts and the rise of Trumpism in the Premier League. You can find links to all of the articles that we talk about in today's episode in the description. So if you're on YouTube, look in the bio. On SoundCloud, it'll be down there as well. I do encourage you to go and read them, particularly Richard Jolly's that we talk about halfway through today's piece because we pick a few tangents and discuss around it. Um, but it, it really is worth reading. It's very well written. Um, so I'd encourage you to go and do that. Also, I'd like to mention that This Football Life has had another couple of episodes released. After the sad news that Cyril Regis had passed away last week, Josh re-released an episode that he recorded with Cyril about six months ago. So you can go and listen to that if you want a little bit more of an insight into Cyril's life in his own words. And also, Josh spoke to Ron Atkinson, who used to be Manchester United manager. You can find both of those episodes, I believe, on YouTube. If the Ron Atkinson one isn't on YouTube, it definitely will be on SoundCloud and iTunes. So please do go and uh, show some support and give uh, a subscribe and a listen to those episodes. They're, they're really, really high quality, in my opinion, and uh, they're, they're fascinating listens. Since we're discussing uh, TIFO's editorial site today, I will also remind you that you can follow us on numerous social media channels. We're on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram as TIFO Football underscore. Little underscore at the end there. And finally, I will say that the uh, TIFO Tactics podcast is still a work in progress. Alex and I have been really busy making a few videos recently, and in fact we've uh, just started a partnership with Bundesliga to contribute some videos to their channel on YouTube on uh, but something like a fortnightly basis, I think. The first one was on Bayern Munich, and they released that on their channel last week. Uh, so you can go and check that out. And the next one, I believe, is on Schalke. Very exciting stuff. But in the wake of that work, we will be uh, working on the TIFO Tactics podcast. We just don't want to, re- you know, we don't want to release anything prematurely. Uh, we'd like it to be good before it goes out. And I imagine you would too, so I'm sure you don't mind waiting. Um, but that's all from me today. Thanks very much for downloading the podcast. I do hope you enjoy it. Uh, you can uh, get us on Twitter or on YouTube or wherever you like with a little bit of feedback, or you can come at me straight on Twitter. I'm at JM underscore Divine with any feedback that you have or any questions for upcoming shows. But thanks for downloading and uh, enjoy the show. So the first article that I want to talk to you about today, Seb, is by Kwaku Amunu Quist, and it's titled Alexis Sanchez and the New Realities at Chelsea. Uh, now, Alexis Sanchez is, is a sort of foot in to, to what Kwaku wants to talk about in, in this article, because there was a rumour sparked a couple of days ago. Um, by the way, for anyone listening, we're recording this before the weekend, before any transfer has been finalised. We, we, you know, it, it, The minute it looks like he's going to go to Manchester United, but we don't really know. Um, so that's why we're not talking about him specifically. We're going to talk about the, the Chelsea angle instead. Um, but there was, uh, as part of the saga, there was a rumour launched uh, that well, maybe Chelsea were interested, I think, because a reporter asked Conte a question and Conte said that he didn't think they were. 
uh, which which is how most rumours start now, isn't it? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we when we get onto the next article as well, because that, that feeds into. Um, but Kwaku's point in uh, in the piece he's written about about Chelsea is that uh, despite the fact that they're, they're very unlikely to be involved in the chase, they 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 almost probably couldn't be at this point, or at least Kwaku couldn't imagine uh, couldn't imagine seeing them doing something like that. Would you be able to elaborate on on his point for us, sir? Yeah, I, I think what the article is, is, is targeting is the kind of the. Um the change in Chelsea's scenario within the landscape of, of English football and European football as a whole, actually, in that um, once upon a time, you know, if a, if a player wanted, um, as you said at the beginning, we we're recording this a couple of days before the weekend, so we don't we don't have any hard details of any completed transfer. But supposedly, Manchester United are willing to pay Alexis Sanchez five hundred thousand pounds a week after tax. Um, and there was obviously a point where, perhaps not to the same amount, but Chelsea were the kind of club who in relative terms, could offer that kind of wage and, you know, could offer uh, a player that sort of, um, you know, that, that, that kind of golden handshake at the end of his career and, and make a purchase which wasn't necessarily um, made with the long term in mind, but a kind of uh, mm. a short-term vanity signing, uh, for want of a better phrase. Um, and Chelsea's reality has changed. They, they even, even with Roman Abramovich's backing, they no longer sort of exist within that kind of... Um, that area of financial supremacy. Um, they are very much a. They very much play second fiddle to Manchester United and Manchester City, um, and it's actually. I mean, Quaker's Quaker's point is backed by uh, their transfer activity over the last sort of probably over the last five years actually, in that they don't. Um, they can no longer really compete for the truly elite players. So, for instance, uh, you know when when Paul Pog became not on the market but became available. Um, in inverted commas, you know that there was no question that Chelsea were going to be able to compete against Manchester United for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, similarly, um, you know, Gabriel Jesus wasn't an option for them. I mean, he, Jesus didn't cost an awful lot of money, but you know, in terms of sort of what is attractive to the contemporary elite player. Chelsea no longer occupy the same space. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe we should tie in uh, one of the other articles we're going to talk about today as well, which is something that that, that you wrote about Eden Hazard, uh, because there's been some talk about his future as well. Uh, there, there's a there's a new contract that he needs to sign. That's on the that's on the horizon. Um, and one of your suggestions is that perhaps in, instead of uh, money, which is I suppose the obvious first thought um, when we're talking about players potentially transferring to other clubs, if they can get a better deal somewhere else. One of the other things that you've suggested uh, might play into this, I think fairly, uh, is is playing style. Uh, because as we talked about there with Gabriel Jesus, uh, it's more about what is attractive to a player. Obviously money uh, factors into that and with clubs like Manchester City and Man United, it's, it's a major part of it. But at the moment with Antonio Conte in charge, obviously Chelsea did very well last season, but Conte exerts uh, an awful lot of control over what's happening on the field. And uh, your argument in this piece is that in some ways you could argue that that kind of holds players like Eden Hazard back. Um, and so I wonder I wonder if maybe that plays into it as well, because that's another way of, of, of looking at it and potentially another negative or current negative for Chelsea. Yeah, I think so. I think it's more kind of... Um, I think it's more a string of coincidences than... than um, you know, than a kind of an agreed upon style at Chelsea. It's just that sort of, if you look at their most successful managers, with probably the exception of Carlo Ancelotti, um, that success has been founded on a kind of a, a very rigid tactical style. So Mourinho, obviously, um, his priority has not always necessarily been defending his own goal, but kind of 
the attacking structures that you see from him are very controlled. And I kind of, yeah. you know, players like Eden Hazard have actually done very well in that, but I don't think um, we have ever seen Eden Hazard play right to the extremity of his, his potential. Um, ditto now under Conte. I mean, anyone who's spent time uh, at Stamford Bridge will know um, just how active Conte is on the touchline. And, and he's, uh, mm. he's almost, it, it's almost um, obsessive. I mean, he, um, he agonizes over, you know, every, uh, every, every pass and uh, every off the ball movement. Um, and any player who's playing on that touch, the, the side of his touchline, you know, inevitably gets an earful for 45 minutes. You're supposed to be here, there, you know, you're supposed to be doing this, not that. And mm. I think Hazard is such a gifted footballer that sort of there's, a, there's an argument to be said that, um, from a from the perspective of a pure spectacle, he would be more entertaining and more appreciated if he played in the kind of environment where there were there weren't these sort of the imperatives around defensive control and positioning, and those are conditions typically found at clubs like Real Madrid, like Paris Saint Germain, uh, to a lesser extent to Bar- like Barcelona. I mean, I think it's um it's a sort of it's a it, it, it's tied in with the kind of the. I suppose the Neymar move in, over the summer. I mean, he he isn't playing for Paris Saint Germain because that is the finest, um, you know, but because Ligue 1 is the finest competition in European football. It is a it's a soft league. It's an easy league for Paris Saint Germain to win, and they win. You know, I, I wouldn't even say that Paris Saint Germain are a particularly impressive team. They there are they are just a collection of not freewheeling attacking players, but an awful lot of very good, very expensive attacking players. And so, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's, um, there's the capacity for, for greater expression in that sort of situation. And, you know, similarly at Real Madrid, I, I know La Liga is infinitely stronger than La Liga. And um, I think maybe uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona's dominance, um, not Real Madrid's dominance so much this season, because they've actually been relatively poor, but um, their dominance is slightly overstated. Um, however, I think there's a difference between uh, how attacking players who've moved from the Premier League to La Liga have performed. So even Cristiano Ronaldo, as good as as wonderful a player as he was, and uh, you know, in spite of the ridiculous goal volume that he um, accumulated at Manchester United, he became a slightly more I say three-dimensional footballer when he moved to Real Madrid because there's a there's a greater license. I mean, at Real Madrid, Cristiano Ronaldo is not required to do anything within his own half, really. Um, yeah. You know, he may defend the odd corner, but there's not sort of compared to Hazard's role at Chelsea, where every every outfield player at Chelsea, uh, be it under Conte, be it under Mourinho, um, they are either Mourinho spell. They are required to take to be an active participant in every phase of the game. Um, yeah, and I think for someone like Hazard. Uh, that's restricting and it's also um, there are reasons obviously uh, why up to this point he hasn't really been a contender for an award like the Ballon d'Or uh, Messi and Ronaldo rightly have that that that, uh, that competition covered um, but eventually they are going to leave the game and retire or, or fade away from from their current level and, and Hazard is one of those guys who if he's positioned with the right team in the right environment there's no reason why he can't contend for that award and I, I just think that sort of <laughs> If ego is a factor, I'm not. The article doesn't dismiss the notion that obviously money is the is the is the sort of the 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 single most instructive aspect. I, I would have thought. I mean, because Real Madrid can offer him more money than Chelsea can, and that will always matter to a player. However, 
if he wants to occupy a certain territory within the game, I, I think it's reasonable to say that he probably does have to leave Chelsea. Yeah, well, that, that brings a couple of things to mind, actually, because we, uh, we made a video uh, that came out uh, last Friday about Vava, uh, who played for, for the international Brazil team in the, in the 50s and the 60s. And uh, he's, he's actually a player of a, of a very select group of, I think, Zidane, uh, Paul Breitner and um, one other player whose name... Oh, Pele, of course, Pele. How could I forget him? So, uh, who, scored, um, who scored at least two goals, or at least in, in two separate World Cup finals. Um, and he played in, in Brazil and he played in Spain and he was once asked about the, the difference between uh, the two styles of football. And he said that he, you know, he liked both of them, but the reason that he liked Brazil more than Spain was because the Brazilian managers, whilst they did have uh, tactical philosophies like the managers did in Spain, they also recognised that there was um, individual brilliance in certain players and that sometimes uh, intuition had to take hold and made me think of that when you were talking about Eden Hazard. But the other thing it brings to mind is the idea that there might be uh, in, in, in modern football a bit of a conflict between the individual and, and the collective here because really what we're talking about is a player who's uh, at a very, very good Premier League side who aren't going to win the league this season but did last year and definitely you know will have hopes of doing so next year and the year after. They're going to continue to compete. Uh, they have a very good manager. They have a very solid base of play and he, he plays in a, you know, a great team. And he does have opportunities to, to challenge for, you know, for every potential trophy in, in theory. I realise they're not in the Champions League this year, but you see what I'm saying. Um, but really what we're saying is that if he were to go to a club like Real Madrid or like Paris Saint-Germain and, and Real Madrid as well, and I know we're sort of letting them off the hook a little bit by saying that La Liga isn't, you know, it's not a walkthrough in the way that, that Liga is, but I suppose evidenced by the fact that Real Madrid don't have a clear tactical style and, and Zidane doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a, a clear philosophy by any means of the term. Obviously they're not doing as, as well as Barcelona this year and, and that's perhaps the reason why but the fact that they're still able to walk over teams just by hiring very attacking very you know high quality players like Eden Hazard for example what what, what are we really saying are we saying that, that the peak of a player's career or the or their hope should be to move to a club where the opposition are easier to play or there's more freedom to play how they want so that they might be more likely to win an individual award, which is essentially meaningless. Or should the aim still be to to play as part of a, as a, a part of a collective, where perhaps you're not going to get the the limelight in the way that you would at the the other clubs? I think it's a hard question to answer because I, I think it's a um, you have to assess it on a player by player basis. Yeah. I think what's interesting is um, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was the um, the subject of a, a, a feature documentary. Um, it's very interesting that kind of the, um, the, 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 the documentary was sort of, uh, coincided with, um, Real Madrid's winning of their 10th Champions League or, you know, European Cup, however you want to term it. Um, and actually the focus of it was not that it was kind of, it was, that was very much a, a, a sort of a, a subplot to Ronaldo's drive towards the Ballon d'Or, um, <laughs> And I, look, I, I I I completely appreciate that sort of we can't judge every modern player by Cristiano Ronaldo's standards because he is um, he's a very self orientated player, of course, um, and he exists in you know alongside Messi in a kind of stratosphere all of his own. However, I, I think the modern player um, 
sort of his interests are, are kind of aimed towards a sort of amalgamation of, of factors. So um, obviously he wants to be in a position to win European Cups and domestic leagues and domestic Cups and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. He needs to be in a position where he can earn a lot of money. He wants to maximise quite quite reasonably his earning potential. But mm-hmm. I think for a certain, for a, a small group of footballers, the Ballon d'Or continues to matter. Um, and it will continue to matter more as Ronaldo and Messi fade away from the game because at the moment they have the award locked up. It's just shared between the two of them. Well, maybe we should re- restructure the question and look at it a slightly different way. Uh, maybe it's not so much about what the players want, but maybe it's about how... Uh, we as the observers uh, judge uh, or, or deem value on these players because, and it doesn't have to be you know the Ballon d'Or. Obviously, we're not sitting around saying, well, if 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 he won the Ballon d'Or, then he must be the best player in the world. That obviously isn't how it works. But I think you'll agree, and I think this comes across in in your article as well that if a player like Eden Hazard were to move to Real Madrid and continue to play at the, at the same rate as you know he's playing in Chelsea now, whether or not that would result in him scoring more goals in a different league, put that aside for now. You are absolutely right in the sense that he, his value would go up, and that he would be he would be judged uh, as a probably a better player than he is now, or or you know higher on the sort of the hierarchy with Messi and Ronaldo still at the top. So is it? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is how how do we as as fans and observers uh, judge players? Is 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 that wrong? No, I don't think so because I, I think we as fans and observers judge players. Um, you know, in part according to our own sort of tribal loyalties. Um, and that's just a part of the game, whether it's right or wrong, that, that is just the way it is. I, I don't think, for instance, there are, I mean, any anybody other than the kind of the um, the sort of uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona, Barcelona fundamentalists really value the Ballon d'Or as a, you know, as a, as a, um, a, a symptom of greatness. I don't think it really matters. But but if Hazard moved from Chelsea to Real Madrid and and he was the same player there that he is here, do you, do you do you think that pe- more people would think he was better? Yeah, I, I think there's certainly a validation which comes with that kind of move because I think what we're what we're not ignoring, but I, th- I think one of the the sort of the, the elephant in the room here is that um, in spite of Roman Abramovich, Chelsea Chelsea are not quite an also ran. But you would never consider them to be, for instance, a Champions League favourite every year, just because they're a good team. Uh, and uh, you, you're quite right when you said earlier that they would have hopes of winning the Premier League next season. But realistically, are they going to do that with Manchester City being where they are and the, the sort of the mood around the club and Guardiola's um, sort of uh, ideology taking root at the Etihad? Can they compete with Manchester United in the summer when inevitably they spend another three hundred million pounds on? Um, premium off the peg talent again probably not and so for someone like Hazard who I, I think I'm right in saying that he's 27 at the moment and he'll turn 28 before the end of the year this is the point at which you have to be in contention and I think there are a whole load of other factors which come with with that kind of move yes you get to wear a shirt of a of a club who are more popular Real Madrid are inarguably uh, globally at least more popular than Chelsea you get to feature in fixtures which garner much more um, global attention. If you're a, a member of uh, one of the teams taking part in the Classico, that is, I can't even really describe why, but that that sort of elevates you a bit. You become, you know, you you, you become an actor in a in a higher grossing film, if you like. <laughs> um, and I think your chances of appearing in a Champions League final, I look, do increase. Um, if you if you had to put a, a name on the actor that would play 
Hazard at Chelsea to the one that would play him at Real Madrid. Could you do that, Seb? Okay, well, I'd say maybe uh, maybe at the moment he's a sort of uh, he's a kind of Tom Hardy. <laughs> okay. But 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 it, but if you if you um, if you if you move him to, uh, to to Real Madrid, maybe you are a, a kind of a, a super talented version. Maybe you become more of a a, a DiCaprio type. Um, you know, you're not necessarily better, but you know, more famous. Mm. You go from not being mauled by the bear to being mauled by the bear. Yeah, or, or, or you, you know, you, 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 you maybe even become someone that fights off the bear and lives to tell the tale. Wow. Okay. Impressive. Yeah, I want to drop back on to to, to Sanchez just before uh, we move on. Um, as I said before, we don't know what's happening. It looks very likely that he's going to go to Manchester United. If he doesn't, we don't know. But what we do know uh, is that there's been um, lots of lots of reports. Uh, trickling out uh, that the deal is is sizable, as you mentioned before, Seb. There were some reports saying that Sanchez was uh, going to earn up to uh, five hundred thousand pound after tax at United. Um, one of the things that, that's interested me about about this uh, and and the way it's been reported on is the potential difference, uh, different way in which it's treated because Manchester United are involved. Now, there's two different trains of thought on on this one is that it doesn't make any difference and that Manchester United spend too much money or you know I mean anything's too much money but too much money in the context on on a player he's already 29 and they're you know throwing their cash around and it's disgusting the other train of thought is that Manchester United get involved and all of a sudden Alexis Sanchez isn't the player that he was when he was moving to Manchester City uh, that it's too much money uh, reports start to include the wages and the agents fees and the total cost and every headline you know it costs a billion rather than how it would be reported for other players where, where do you stand on that and I suppose you know the answer is somewhere in the middle presumably uh, I actually happen to think that both clubs Wherever he ends up, I think either Manchester City or Manchester United are, are wasting their time from a playing uh, a footballing perspective. Uh, I can certainly see the value of Manchester United adding another star of the game to their portfolio. Um, What's he going to do? Is he just going to sit in place of Jesse Lingard? Well, no, I, I think he makes Manchester United better. But I'm, I'm, my curiosity is over what kind of timescales does he make Manchester United better? Because it, deep down, I think I believe that maybe... Um, given how Jose Mourinho speaks to the press and given how regularly he um, demands more money to spend. I mean, he sort of, he spends the time between transfer windows telling anyone who will listen that he absolutely must have X hundred million pounds to, to spend or it just, it's just not reasonable for him to, to be expected to compete. Um, yeah. part of, that is part of his job. His role as manager of Manchester United is partly to keep the financial taps on and to keep reminding people like Ed Woodward that, yes, you have to keep spending, especially in this era when Manchester City are so economically um, muscular. Uh, I just think if I was a Manchester United fan, first of all, from Manchester United's perspective, uh, a Manchester City's perspective, signing Alexis Sanchez would have made no sense whatsoever. Um, yeah. And I think they would have quite rightly been panned because if who are you bringing him in to replace? I mean, Raheem Sterling, Leroy Sané, Kevin De Bruyne, I mean... Yeah, you can't see anyone fitting in that team. Well, I, I I can see him playing sort of fifteen games and you know starting a fair few and being um, superficially beneficial to their to to their to their um, to their ambition. But um, on the other hand, uh, you know you, you've got this sort of cluster of players who are all younger, who are all developing, and who have all to this point performed extremely well. Yeah. Um, and so there's a question of fairness for Manchester United. I just believe that it's another shiny bauble for the Mourinho Christmas tree. 
in that sort of he doesn't really he's not really interested in um evolving individual players i mean i know there are exceptions to that rule jesse lingard is definitely one of them he's certainly become a better player however he really wants players who he can sign on the friday and chuck into his team on the saturday um and that's fine you know that which might happen incidentally might well happen yeah absolutely um i just think if i'm a manchester united fan and i hear these numbers i think i want a little bit more for my money than a 29 year old alexis sanchez what about the other way of looking at it, which, and I've heard some people say this already, is that uh, the club are incredibly wealthy, they can afford to spend it. Uh, fans might say, I don't care how much money it is, I just want the best players, or I want this player playing for the club. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, well, fine, absolutely. I mean, um, I can't speak for every individual fan. I mean, um, I'm sure there are plenty that sort of, a lot of fans now, I mean, for them, the transfer market is kind of like, a, it's almost a separate entity to the actual sport. It's a sort of, we got one over on um, this club by signing this player. And then, you know, once he actually signs and becomes part of the team, you move on to the next big superstar that you just absolutely have to have. Um, And uh, it's not how I necessarily think about the game, but it is how other people do. So, okay. Um, I just just believe there are better ways of spending the money. I mean, that Manchester United have money and they spend it. Well, I I don't think anyone's really in a position to hold agreements against it because... Um, to have agreements with it because that is the game now. I mean, this is a world where um, Paris Saint-Germain essentially spent however much they did on on a player because their egos got a little bit bruised by what happened in last season's Champions League. I mean, mm. in that context, Manchester United signing Alexis Sanchez is really neither here nor there. I mean, it's just he's there, he's available, he doesn't want to play for Arsenal anymore, he wants more money, and Manchester United are in a position to give him all of those things. So, okay. Okay, let's move on uh, to an article written by Richard Jolly. Uh, this article, it was a very interesting read, this one. Uh, it's titled Conspiracy and Fundamentalism, The Rise of Footballing Trumpism. Uh, and Richard to- uh, begins by talking about Martin Tyler and how there are accusations from certain, you know, certain elements of certain fan bases that he's biased against this club or he's biased against that club. Um, but the article, the article goes on uh, to talk more about... Um, the football existing in an age where there's more information and, and, and more facts than ever before, and uh, you know Richard describes this as reflecting the society and the Trumpification of that age. Um, I found it very interesting. He goes on to talk about uh, individual self-appointed spokespeople uh, who have, I suppose, you know, he means that a lot of Twitter accounts, a lot of people in some way or another, profiting from having absurd opinions about the game. This is something we see more and more often now, isn't it? And I think, I don't know whether it, it, it I don't know whether it's fair to say that it, that it started with, uh, with American politics or not, but uh, that sort of uh, sheen has spread uh, across culture, really. And, and in football, it's the same as it is anywhere else. You have people who say stuff, I suppose, that they don't really believe or that they know is controversial in order to to have some advantage uh, come from it. Do you think that this really affects football itself in any way, or is it just something that happens in, in the circus around the sides? Uh, well, it doesn't affect football, um, you know, uh, the game, because, it, I mean, I think we're not going to start naming people, and Rich doesn't do that in his article, but I think we all know who he's referring to, and I, that, that sort of type of, of social media person. And, and the one thing they all have in common is that they are generally outsiders they're not you know they're not people who are writing for the telegraph or the times or are actually in press boxes they're just guys or girls sitting at home on, and watching the game on tv but what about when it does enter 
the press because and and we've just spoken about transfers that's probably a good good example um there's always lots of rumors which are perpetuated and, and magnified by you know the 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 Sanchez to Chelsea one is an example a reporter asks are you interested Antonio Conceza don't think so and then it becomes a, a possibility the, that that does exist in the press it's not impossible to imagine that uh the more mainstream media might catch on uh, to the idea that there's you know, advantage to be had in, in spouting controversial issues. I mean, that that definitely happens already. Whether it happens so much in, in football or not is is debatable. But, I mean, it just reminds me of, of the first episode of uh, a British TV comedy called The Thick of It. Uh, people, people may or may not have seen this, um, but The Thick of It is a sort of political satire and uh, lots of civil servants and politicians have... have have uh, congratulated it for its accuracy in, depict- in, in depicting how Westminster and, and politics in, in, in Britain actually works. And in the opening scene, Malcolm Tucker, who is the communications officer or the spin doctor for the current government, uh, goes to talk to one of his ministers. And, uh, and Cliff, Cliff Lawton. <laughs> Cliff Lawton, there you go. Oh, you do remember well, don't you? And uh, initially he's there you know, under the guise that he's reassuring him. We've seen these negative stories in the papers and, you know, don't worry, we've got your backing completely. But he goes on to say, but, you know, the stories are there and uh, people are now going to read them and think you've done this stuff. And if we don't fire you, they're going to think that we're weak because we haven't done it. So even though we know that you didn't do those things, we also know that people think that you did. And if they think that you did and we don't do anything, they're going to think that we're bad. So you have to go. You know, and and I, I can't imagine that being... It's not unimaginable. Well, I, 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 the thing is, Joe, I, I would draw a line in the sand here between, like, I, I agree with you to a certain extent that there is a, for instance, it's not a coincidence that around March, April every year, there's a big long list of Arsenal transfer targets which are appear in the press right around the time their supporters are asked to renew their season tickets. Right. I think, you know, it, it, in a sense, clubs, um, clubs are very sort of PR savvy. They, they understand most of them, whether fans believe it or not, seem to understand the sort of the, the local mood. Um, and so there is an element of that. And I dare say that, you know, part of this Chelsea thing um, maybe is a kind of... Uh, it's a slow day, right? It's I mean, a slow day. And look, and, and, the, and, the, and the press know it's a winner. Yeah, but also... You, but they know it's not true. Well, yeah, but you've got to factor in the way that some, you know, sort of the, the modern imperatives around um, a certain type of reporting in the sense that, um, you know, the, 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 the Alexis Sanchez Chelsea story isn't necessarily a story it's a it's a antonio conte refuses to rule out story mm-hmm. which is as we all know code for nothing is happening here whatsoever but but is also increasingly becoming the majority of of of, of journalism well i, I mean I, I i'm not so i'm not, not sure i i'd sort of be comfortable saying it's a majority i think it's a a loud element of a certain type of journalism it's the stuff that pays for the other stuff it is the stuff that pays for the other stuff there are a lot of journalists out there who are you know who don't like that who don't like being associated with it and um well welcome to tfofootball.com welcome to tfofootball.com very good you are, see you are. you're doing your pr as well nice one um but i would draw a distinction between that stuff and what rich is referring to in his article um he is aiming uh his ire at a certain type of kind of disconnected individual who acts as a kind of unofficial PR man. Well, that's good, actually, because that, that leads me into quoting uh, a sentence which I, I uh, really enjoyed. Uh, and, oh, sorry, did I interrupt you lots there? 
I, I'll let you continue. I just I thought that was the perfect. You were describing this person, and and Richard Jolly describes them as, as saying that they can marshal at, at armies of idiots, the one-eyed who have populated the cyberlands where the visually impaired have crowned themselves kings. Right. So I thought that was very nice. He and and you know what I, I mean. It's reflective of the article as a whole. I think it's a terrifically written piece. Um, I think there are. I, I suppose an example is. You find these people and you, you you see their Twitter accounts and you see them making incredibly asinine comments, um, which are just, I mean, for want of a better word, absolutely pointless. Um, mm. And yet they're sort of they're retweeted and shared in their thousands. It's quite remarkable. And they'll say things like, um, "Player X isn't getting the appreciation that he deserves for this," and it's kind of this sort of this version of a you know a mistruth that they kind of. it's something that really resonates with a particular type of fan, a kind of um, Mm. everything outside of my club is, is uh, who I was going to swear there. That wouldn't have been good. Um, That's fine. You can swear to believe it out, but you you know what I mean? It it just, it plays to the fundamentalists. It's a sort of, I, it's actually, it's not a million miles away from kind of something we're seeing in British politics. Um, A a, a sort of a, a trait, which is almost shared equally between the extreme left and the extreme right in the sort of, their version of events um, is not contestable in any way, and anybody whose opinions don't quite don't exactly tally with their own is mm. is an X or a Y or a Z or some other sort of terribly pejorative yeah. term. Um, and it's the same in football. It's a kind of I I I, I don't think this the person who 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 sent this um, is a kind of uh, it was one of the sort of the targets of Richard's piece. It was just a sort of um, you know, and anybody on Twitter. Um, but it, he said something like, um, David De Gea made a save in some game a few weeks ago, and he's just, like, he's just not just not appreciative of what he is. And you just think, there, there are almost Netflix documentary series about David De Gea, uh, and based on every single save he makes and every single game he plays. And, and I don't think there's anybody in the Western world who is under any illusion uh, about his abilities as a, a goalkeeper. Mm. And yet there's this sort of, there's this tribal part of a certain type of fan that goes, yeah, he isn't getting the credit he deserves. I agree with that. And yeah. so it's, it's sort of this, this kind of this, this false industry. Well, it's also it, cre- it, create, it creates a false narrative because I, don't, I think it's more likely that the fan who is retweeting that, the fan thinks, well, by the fact that this person has said that he isn't getting the appreciation he deserves, despite the fact that I appreciate him, that must mean that he isn't. Therefore, I must retweet this because I want to be part of him getting the appreciation that he deserves. Yeah. And he's not. And I, you know what? It's also I hate say, Joe, but it, it's also um, it exists beyond the the club boundaries. I think there's. Um, I certainly I certainly see people that okay writers who deal in very narrow areas. So people who have specific interests in the game, um, they kind of they have a little bit of that that mindset as well. There's a sort of. You know, if you don't view football through this particular lens, it's like um, it's like the um, the 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 proper football man versus analytics mm. argument that always goes on. It's a kind of one side, and these are both lunatic fringes. One side, you know, sort of refuses to acknowledge that the other can be yeah. helpful in any sort of way, and anybody who 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 possesses any traits which belong in one camp or the other is to be rejected. You should just name Alex Stewart out loud. Well, think, that's, that's who I was really aiming at. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it is just because we all work together. I'd just be awkward. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right though, and I think it is it absolutely is um, reflected in politics or all, all, all the other way around. I, mean, I was reading earlier a, a, a piece about 
uh, Oprah Winfrey potentially running for, for president in 2020. And there was an interesting part uh, about how uh, name recognition uh, has, has uh, you know, it's the, the stock of name recognition has risen uh, in in Washington, you know, in the last 10 years to the point now where maybe it's impossible for anyone who isn't a, uh, already a celebrity or already very well known to, to run for the pre- presidency, which I think is a... This is a bizarre state of affairs, isn't it? Well, I, I think I think that's not exclusive to um, to to US politics either. I think there's a lot of that in British politics. There's a kind of um, I think if you uh, if you if you look at the rise of, for instance, Corbynism, if that is in fact a word, um, I think you know there, there's a, a lot of fundamental good there. But I think there's also a lot of um, you know there's a lot of cultishness as well. It's like a it's like a movement which 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 develops a, a life of its own. Um, and I, I'm not for a minute comparing Jeremy Corbyn with, with someone like Donald Trump. Of course not. I, I just mean that um, it attracts a similar type of follower. I remember, um, I think it was during the Glastonbury Festival. Um, I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn did a, did a speech on one of the days or something. Yes, he did. And there was a picture of it on the BBC website, and it was sort of him. It was from. Uh, it was it was taken from his perspective, so behind him showing, and you know the sort of the, the classic Glastonbury Vista with you know thousands of people in the audience and. Um, there was a picture on the BBC website, and um, someone on Twitter had posted a different picture uh, where it showed maybe sort of you know five extra people among the five thousand, and it was a kind of here's the picture the BBC won't show you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, and it, it's kind of it's a it's a movement which exists independently of the object of the affection. It's a kind of people people take it upon themselves to be kind of an unofficial PR people, and sort of I'm I'm part of this. I'm 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 doing it, and. Um, well, it's always staffed by people who aren't inherently suspicious of groups, and therefore I don't trust those people. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 you, you need a, a smarter mind than mine to explain it fully, but uh, it's, a, it's a very strange phenomenon. And, and naturally, like a lot of other, other things, it's bled into football. And also, you know, one of the, 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 the common uh, features are of the movements across different topics and areas is the huge popularity of people that sort of involve themselves within it. It's a kind of, you know, there is definitely a currency to be mined from being one of the people that kind of, um, you know, sends the, what the fuck are you, oh, oh God, uh, what is the BBC It's, doing? it's okay, I'm not going to bleep anything. Okay, but, it, but it, it's the same principle. It's a kind of, why isn't David De Gea uh, praised more? And it's the yeah. kind of, why aren't the BBC showing this picture? It's kind of the same thing. I mean, there are different, um, there are different motivations behind it, of course, and different end games and aims and, and you know, what have you, but... It is the same sort of energy. Okay, let's move on uh, to the final article we were going to talk about today. Jordan Ibe provides the latest example of Bournemouth's culture of improvement. That was written by yourself, Seb. What's what's going on there? I think um, Jordan Ibe's a really interesting player in that, um, obviously, when Raheem Sterling left Liverpool, uh, there are a lot of Liverpool fans who kind of consoled themselves with this sort of... Uh, illusory idea that, that mm. I was already going to be a better player. And, and look, we, we all understand why that happens. And I, I dare say we've all done it at some point in the past, but it was both false and misleading in the sense that they aren't really comparable. Um, obviously, Jordan and I moved to Bournemouth um, for nearly £20 million at the beginning of last season. And he's had a really poor time to the point where I, I was at a, I was at Bournemouth's game with Watford at the beginning of this season when they lost, and, and I was replaced after sixty minutes, and he was, and this was in August, 
and he was jeered off by his own fans because <laughs> he was just he and he and rightly so well not rightly so but understandably so because he was dreadful unforgiving on the south coast yeah and and uh, very quietly though over the last i, I want to say five or six games he's begun to stir again and um he's not scoring lots of goals and he's not doing lots of things which are going to feature in highlight packages but he's begun to play very well and he, he actually um he scored the um the winning goal against arsenal last uh you know i suppose this is coming out next week so uh, 10 days ago um and eddie howe was was speaking to the press afterwards and he it wasn't quite that he was sort of you know glowing like a, a proud father but he was obviously relieved for him because he alluded to the fact that that sort of the the downturn in Jordan Ives' form and his reaction to the large transfer fee, which took which you know which took him to Bournemouth, has obviously been uh, has obviously exerted quite a quite a substantial pressure on him. Um, and how said that sort of he is just starting to kind of come to terms with things like that, and it, it's just starting to free himself from you know some, from some of the from some of the reticence which has come with it because. I, I go to Bournemouth quite a lot because it's quite easy for me to get there, and um, you can see you could see an eye a sort of a determination, you know, to take easy options to 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 make decisions which um, which kept the crowd off his back sometimes. So, for instance, instead of instead of taking on a fullback down the line, he cut inside and play a square pass, and mm. you know he wouldn't take on a shot when a shot was there to be taken, and and stuff like that. Normal, you know. Um, you, normal symptoms of a player lacking confidence maybe he needs a little injection of cristiano maybe you know maybe a dice ronaldo right um and he's hasn't quite had that yet but he's starting to be consistently an asset to his side and i i just think it's interesting because i eddie howe eddie howe has spoken of in relation to what he's enabled bournemouth to do he's taken him up to the premier league and he's kept them there and you know that that in itself is a remarkable achievement but he's also done it with a um, and I mean no offence to the players um, specifically, but he's done it with a group of players largely who don't actually belong in the Premier League. So guys like, um, for instance, Steve Cook and Simon Francis and um, Ryan Fraser and and, and uh, Harry Arter, you know, they're, they're, they've become good players and they've certainly improved since they were here. But if Bournemouth hadn't been promoted, no Premier League side would have bought any of them, yeah. is my point. Um, Jordan Ibe isn't quite the same, because he's been assumed to to, to have had a, a Premier League future since he first emerged at Liverpool, since he first joined the club. Um, but the the same kind of the the symptoms of improvement are there in him as well, and it, it sort of it reflects very well on the manager because he he sort of he's not someone that tries to build a team by spending a lot of money. Although recently he has you know sanctioned quite a few large transfers, but he just he's content to work with a group, with work with a, a pliable set of footballers. And just tune them to the situations as they come up. So last winter, Bournemouth went through a rotten period of form where they just couldn't win. They couldn't stop conceding goals. But somehow, without making a big splash in the transfer market, he was able to guide them through it to, to a point of form where you know they were able to steer themselves clear of relegation and actually finished near a mid-table in the relegation zone by the end of it. And the same is really true this season. Bournemouth are... Bournemouth are not safe from relegation by any means, but given the way they started the season and where they were in sort of August September, they now look quite healthy. They 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 knocked off a you know a stubborn Everton side a few weeks ago. They they beat Arsenal and quite deservedly beat Arsenal, even if the story around that is Arsenal's failings and Alexis Sanchez etc. But they play very well and they are consistently playing much better. Um, and they're unbeaten, I think, in about five games now. Um, and it's sort of it's a rare attribute for a manager these days because when a team gets in trouble, 
the answer, and this comes from the fans as well as the club themselves, is we need to buy players. You need to buy a better calibre of player. You need to spend money. Whereas mm. how he has brought Nathan Aki, Asmir Begovic, Jermaine Defoe. However, sort of the crux of the improvement is the way that the team as a whole has performed and the style of play and the um, the 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 way in which they defend and attack. And, and, and it's a... It's a very satisfying type of improvement. Yeah. Two brief tangents before before I want to talk a, t- a tiny bit more about Eddie Howe. Firstly, uh, we mentioned Raheem Sterling there. I was going to bring him up earlier as well when we were talking about Eden Hazard uh, because obviously he's uh, playing incredibly well now and scoring a lot of goals. He perhaps ties into the last article, Richard Jolly's article as well, because he doesn't... Uh, or maybe, maybe he does. Maybe I'm not paying attention. I don't want to be accused of being one of those people who stokes a, a controversial fire just to, just to start oh, well, talking well, well, about That is him. you down to a T, though. I mean, that is, your, that is who you are as a person, obviously. Uh, <laughs> that is who I am. That's a very... Can't, can't get away from that, really. Um, but do, do you... Firstly, do you think that Raheem Sterling gets the, 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 the credit that he's due now? It's almost exactly the same tweet that that person... Put out, but because because I, I think there's there's some assumption that he gets on the end of a lot of really good stuff rather than having improved as a player. But I mean, he's scoring nonstop, right? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about. Maybe I, I don't know what credit he's due precisely. I I don't know what the answer to that question is. However, I I wonder how much credit he gets though. Yeah, well, there, there's always going to be a certain group of people that don't like seeing Raheem Sterling do well, and. and it, it's a very heavy topic for us to get into uh, for obvious reasons. It's been covered extensively on the TFO website if people want to read about that. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's good to leave it there then. Go to the TFO. There's, there's some very good pieces by Nick Miller and Musa Conger in particular about this topic and, and why it is that there's a little bit of... Um, well, just read the pieces, I think. I mean, um, it's the same reason why you know, there's a lot of uh, animosity towards someone like Deli Ali, for instance. It's a it's a common trait. Unfortunately, it is a common trait. Um, I realise that the two personalities are different, but there there is uh, there are there, there are familiar aspects of the criticism um, with regards to the footballing. But I think Raheem Sterling probably doesn't get the recognition for how the sort of the intellectual improvement has gone on in this game. Because as a mm. footballer, he's the same guy, but he um, he more than probably anybody else who's been coached by Pipe Guardiola has. Um, adapted to the way that Guardiola wants to play and so the reason he's on the end of so many moves and the reason why he has so many what look like tap-ins and easy goals is because he has a very clear understanding for what his role in that team is supposed to be and yeah, I think yeah. that is the thing that should be applauded. Okay the, the other brief tangent uh, we were talking about Bournemouth uh, clawing their way out of the, the relegation zone last season ending up near mid-table at some, to- at some point we should probably talk about Crystal Palace and Roy Hodgson uh, because it's quite an astonishing achievement really isn't it I mean well, we, we haven't mentioned it on the podcast yet we haven't done uh, a tactical video on them but we're planning to in, in the next couple of months because I think uh, you know September, October even the beginning of November everyone was saying I mean didn't they have the, the worst start statistically of, of any team ever? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, they didn't score a goal until about the end of September. <laughs> I mean, um, no, I, I, um, but then I, I actually, by the time this podcast comes out, um, there's a Connor Kelly wrote a very interesting article about this, um, about sort of Roy Hodgson kind of unfairly gets bracketed with that sort of group of dullard English managers who seemingly get Dinosaurs. jobs. Well, it's not just dinosaurs. It's just the same faces, the Pardews and the Allardyces. And, you know, mm. they're, they're, they're employed by clubs who just don't have the imagination to look any further. Um, yeah. Hodgson was absolutely, you know, easy to kind of pigeonhole him as, you know, within the same kind of situation. But 
he was absolutely the right appointment. He is a, you look back at the work he did at West Bromwich Albion and to a greater extent Fulham, and you see that he, he, he characterized all the strengths that Palace needed. Um, and okay, there's a different conversation about whether Palace should be looking um, to evolve their style, but they haven't done that, so it's kind of a moot point. Um, I think he's um, the only. Uh, I, I did this this morning, actually. They, I think they're unbeaten. They, they've lost two of their last thirteen games, and those have only been to Tottenham at Wembley, and there's no disgrace losing there, or to them, and to Arsenal at Selhurst Park, which looks a little bit of a worse result in, in the current climate, but was actually, you know, there's no disgrace in losing at home to Arsenal to an Alexis Sanchez team who were playing very well at the time. Um, and Hodgson has, you know, got an awful lot out of Wilfred Zaha. Um, he has Andros Townsend playing very well. He has Bakri Sacco playing probably the best football of his career at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he's got a reaction out of all kinds of other players. You know, James MacArthur is playing extremely well. Um they are defending far better, and Mamadou Sacco is out with long-term injury. So is Scott Dan, you know, and and, um, and also this is a club that sort of, you know, they don't really have any capable fullbacks either at the moment, or a particularly good goalkeeper. And yet he is oh, very rude about Joel Ward. Uh, well, Joel Ward is injured. Um, I was actually I was actually going to be be um, be rude about Jeffrey Schlupp and Martin Kelly. Um, oh, go ahead. But and Patrick Van Arnholt to a certain extent. But I, I think. Um, you know, it's a club that that sort of uh, you spend their summer doing business um, in accordance with a different manager's needs. Hodgson has come in with a squad to to, to coach a squad which he he didn't assemble. He hasn't had the benefit of a transfer window, and yet I think it's um, I think Roy Hodgson is quite a likable character. Um, it's the way they used to do it in the olden days, isn't it, Seb? Without without all the money, without all the money, and 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 he sort of I think for Roy Hodgson to have retired off the back of what happened with England would have been a terrible way for his career to have ended. Um, and so whatever happens next, I expect he's not that far away from retiring from good, but for, for, for good even. And, and and so if that does happen, he'll have this sort of, you know, a, a, a what is ultimately a, a bookend which reflects very well on his abilities. Well, I, ho- I, hope that, I hope that is the case because at the minute, I think he's uh, still most famous for that gif of his face. Well, I, I, I think, Joe, I, I, I think he always will be. I don't think there's any getting away from that Iceland game. I don't think there's any way of redacting it from his CV. Um, mm. But at least that it has been mitigated by what, if you look at it as a whole, is actually a pretty impressive Premier League career. And take yeah. Blackburn and Liverpool out of that equation. It's especially so. The guy took Fulham to a Europa League final. Yeah. That's uh, that's a, an incredible achievement. Yeah, I also want to say how pleased I am that James MacArthur is playing very well. I always used to feel sorry for him that he arrived on the scene at the same time as James McCarthy, uh, who incidentally was from uh, Hamilton Athletic as well. This is the very same Scottish club, and they both played for Wigan too. And they both played for Wigan, and uh, Martinez went to go and get one of them the year after. He, I think, he went to go and buy James McCarthy first, who was the young, a couple of years younger than than MacArthur. And then he came back the year later for for MacArthur. I always wondered whether he'd accidentally bought the wrong player. And then, um, but uh, when Martinez went to Everton, he took McCarthy with him. Yes, and the irony, did, so. of course, is that uh, James McCarthy is having a dreadful season, and MacArthur has been front and centre of Palace's revival. Yeah, it's just one of those great football stories, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah, it's a classic <laughs> anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But finally, uh, God, this has been quite long, hasn't it? Finally, Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe, right, Seb? Because Eddie Howe, we've talked... Well, we haven't, personally. But people have talked about Eddie Howe as uh, as uh, this uh, young English manager. That's a fact. He is all of those things. Uh, they beat Arsenal the other the other day, as, as you mentioned. Um, there's a sort of bit of a serious comment slash a uh, bit of a joke about him replacing Arsene Wenger or Arsenal fans not wanting that to be the case. What's the future for Eddie Howe? Because that narrative's gone a little bit quiet. Um, very hard to say. I mean, all I can say about Eddie Howe is that um, I think, firstly, a lot of people praise Eddie Howe without really knowing why they're doing it. It's a sort of, yeah, he's young, he's English, he's done really well, and but but there's sort of, you know, that, that, that sort of reasoning lasts about 45 seconds. I think one of the most impressive things about him, if you... If you spend time with him in press conferences, he's one of the most honest, engaging managers in the Premier League. I mean, if you ask him a question, he'll give you an answer. And I know that sounds like a basic requirement, but, you know, it makes him quite a rarity, actually. Sounds like a journalist's dream. Uh, well, I wouldn't say, well, the journalist's dream is Mourinho because he says crazy, controversial, conspiratorial stuff. Mm, the hack's dream is Mourinho. Yeah, but for if you if you want a an answer about, you know, why Bournemouth are doing a certain thing in a game or what they did to prepare for a particular challenge, he'll give you an answer to that. And I, I think there's, it's, it's very novel, actually. Um, and I, I think, um, I don't know what his future is. I don't, um, I think, I think the problem with clubs like Arsenal is that, um, and, you know, most big clubs, is that if you appoint an Eddie Howe, he lacks the sort of the superstar quality that they want. Um, and he, he doesn't have necessarily the kind of the, uh, the recruiting power that a you know a Mourinho, a Conte, uh, Guardiola. You're absolutely right. I mean, in the in the wake of Moyes as well. Even if they left it another five years and he did very well at Bournemouth on a shoestring budget, that that, that would be very Moyes wakey, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because they, there's just a certain type of fan that isn't interested in that kind of progress. Um, I think I, I can't for the life of me remember who wrote it. It might have been Nick Miller uh, a couple of weeks ago. Said that um, wrote on our on the TFA site that um, that that you know the grass isn't necessarily greener um mm. and there is no harm in eddie house staying at bournemouth um you know somewhere where he is trusted completely he seems to have the the sort of the unwavering uh, support of the fan base and he obviously has a very good relationship with the chairman jeff moston yeah. um and you know he could have a very fine career there i mean i, I accept it's also a lovely place to raise a family seb uh okay if you tell me that's true absolutely um <laughs> You know, nice, this is the sea not far away. You know, Southampton, if you want to go shopping, I mean, great. But, I mean, it, it, it's, I don't know what the next step is for someone like that because, obviously, um, the, there, are, there is a glass ceiling for a club like Bournemouth. But, um, you know, so what? I, I don't think we should be in a rush to move people like this away from an environment in which they've succeeded, in which they're obviously, there is something there, there's something about Bournemouth which works for Eddie Howe. Um, and I think he's actually a far better candidate to coach England one day than he is for, you know, a top club job. Not least because I just don't think anyone will give him a top club job. Not mm. for the kind of the, not through, not because of the Allardyce, oh yeah, it's just my name. It's just because I think fans have a different expectation of, you know, at that level of the table, at that, yeah. at that, that uh, in that area of the table. Um, okay. But he plays good football. He he's, he he makes money go a long way. Um, his players seem to react to him extremely well and are very loyal to him. Uh, you know, the, you could do a lot worse. I mean, it's certainly for, for a club like Everton to be, to be appointing um, someone like Allardyce without at least trying to have a conversation with Jeff Mostyn about, you know, compensation really, how is, I find it quite strange. Mm. Maybe he'll go abroad, you know, 
Strikes me as the type. That kind of, yeah, sort of neophyte thinking, absolutely, why not? I mean, um, you know, he could certainly do a good job. The, the, the style of, of football he coaches is um, universal. He's not a direct football uh, merchant. He is not someone that kind of is quintessentially British in his approach. He could fit in pretty much mm-hmm. anywhere, I'd have thought, yeah. Big talk, okay. Eddie Howe, New England manager, Seb stafford Uh Thanks very much for, for joining us today, Seb. We'll, we'll speak to you again. Uh, in a few weeks. Thanks, Joe.